Every, every so often I bring introductions and uh, it just reminds me um, of the fact that the speedometer in my life doesn't stop. It kind of continues. And uh, John, hopefully this is not a slam both on you and on me at the same time, but uh, uh, I've known Dr. John Fisher my easily about 25 years, something like that. And uh, you may have seen the big, long, hairy introduction. Um, you may have received the uh, email that went out today, if you haven't, or this week, listing his long list of uh, bona fides. Um, I won't uh, repeat all of them. I'll just rattle off a couple of them. Um, Dr. Fisher is the rabbi of Congregation Or Chadash, in Clearwater, Florida. He is the executive director of Menorah Ministries. He is the vice president for academic affairs at St. Petersburg Seminary in Yeshiva. He is Rosh Yeshiva, which means the head of the Yeshiva, Netzer David International uh, Yeshiva. He is a husband, father, grandfather, and all-around good guy. And uh, he's been teaching at Denver Seminary uh, at the Messianic Jewish Studies program this week. And uh, John, we're blessed to have you. Would you please come and want to offer a word of prayer? And um, Hallelujah. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King, we thank you, Lord that you have raised and gifted this wonderful brother, and that you have given him lots of sechel, lots of wisdom, and you've given him a heart for you and for your people Israel. And Lord God, we are eager to hear what you have given him to share with us, and we pray that your ruach, your spirit, would anoint his lips, that he will communicate your word to us, and that you would give us good ears to hear, Lord, and to receive. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, I want to share a secret with you. Don't tell Chaim. His speedometer is slowed down. We've known each other for over 30 years. But it's good to be back with you. Uh, had the opportunity to be with you last time I was teaching at Denver Seminary some four years ago. Uh, so thank you for having the graciousness for inviting me back again. Uh, in our home synagogue, we've made this a whole lot easier. I'll just clip it to my tie and that I don't have to worry about trying to wiggle and figure out where all this is going. So anyhow, it's good to be back with you again, and now I can see you better with no microphone in front of me. Um, over the last couple months, uh, as Jews and those who've joined with us, we've celebrated what seems to be one holiday after another, seemingly almost every week or so, going all the way back to Purim, Pesach, where we stuck in Yom HaShoah as a commemoration of the Holocaust, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Lag Bomer. Um, gosh, what else did we stick in? I'm not there yet. At least, a, at least one or two, a Rosh Kodesh or two, uh, and then 
For those of us who are Messianic, some of us celebrate Hag Hatkia, the Festival of the Resurrection. Some of us even commemorate something called Yom Ha'aliyah, the uh, time that he actually ascended into heaven to sit on the throne, the Messianic throne. And then, of course, yes, we've come to Shavuot as well. Um, and now we're done for the time being. But what's interesting is each year at this, at this juncture, we have just started reading the book of Numbers. Bamidbar, in the wilderness. I'm going to suggest that it's usually a very misunderstood story. We frequently think of it as the desert, of being lost, of grumbling, of complaining, of rebelling against God. But I'm going to suggest that that's a small part of the story, and in fact, often it leaves us with the wrong picture. And it's the wrong purpose for the wilderness experience from God's vantage point, from his viewpoint. You see, from God's perspective, the wilderness experience was a time of nation-forming and relationship-building. And after all, when you think about it, what better place for that than the uncluttered desert, free from all the other distractions that might have taken place at that time? Hmm, there's the clip. Okay, now I'm feeling more at home. Uh, and if it's properly understood, we should just be wild about the wilderness, as was God. Now, as I interacted with Floyd after arriving here just a few minutes before the service, um, God played a joke on me. I did my own wilderness wandering up and down Bellevue Road. I misread the map. I'd have been here more like 9.30 or 9.35 except for that, so I put a lot of miles on my rental car. However, I'm still wild about the wilderness. You see, it's a matter of adjusting our perspective. And as you're probably aware, a proper perspective is absolutely vital, as uh, one person discovered during a routine visit to the doctor. You see, Mrs. Terry went to the doctor's office where she was seen by a young new doctor in the practice. After about four minutes in the examination room, the doctor told her she was pregnant. Well, she burst out of the room, screaming loudly as she ran down the hall. An older doctor in the practice stopped her, calmed her down, asked her what the problem was, and she told him her story. After listening, he had her sit down and relax in another room. And then the older doctor marched down the hallway all the way to the back where the first doctor was, and he demanded, What's the matter with you, Dr. Smith? Mrs. Terry is 59 years old. She has four grown children and seven grandchildren, and you told her she was pregnant? The new doctor nonchalantly continued to write on his clipboard, and without even looking up, he simply said, but does, he, does she still have the hiccups? <laughs> you see, it is truly a matter of perspective. So with that in mind, let's examine Bamidbar from a new perspective. And hopefully your hiccups will be gone by the end as well. The uh, book of Numbers begins by specifying that God spoke to Moses. This is, from a, this is uh, the text from a couple weeks ago. God spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. Now it raises a question, wouldn't it have been sufficient to simply say that God spoke with Moses in the tent of meeting? Why add in the wilderness? It seems merely redundant. Now the Midrash, 
One of the delightful commentaries or elaborations of biblical texts that are part of our history as Jews and our tradition of Torah learning. The Midrash offers a further explanation. And in it, the Midrash says, The Blessed Holy One said to Israel, According to the custom of the world, an earthly king who goes out to the desert, does he find there ease and security just as he would have found in the palace? Does he find the same food or drink? And you, O Israel, who were slaves to Egypt, I brought you out of there, and I caused you to rest on royal couches, just as is said in Exodus 13, and God led the people by way of the wilderness. And then the Midrashis ask, asks, and what does and God led, Vayasev, mean? It means that God caused them to rest like kings resting on their beds in the wilderness. Now, what's he saying? He's reminding us that God provided for Israel in the wilderness in a way that they could experience life as if they were residents in a royal palace. As the Midrashist says, he caused them to rest like kings resting on their beds. Amazing. In the wilderness. So, it raises the question, how did God provide in this fashion for our ancestors in the desert? The Midrashist goes on to tell us that we received manna, so we didn't have to struggle for food in the wilderness. Furthermore, we're told that God surrounded Israel with the clouds of glory. We see part of that in the pillar of cloud that led our people through. These clouds, we're told, shielded Israel from the sun and prepared a path for them in the wilderness, removing any obstacles from their way. Moreover, God provided water for Israel to drink in the form of a well or a rock which would accompany them on, the, on their journeys. And yet another rabbi remarked about that rock, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, building on yet another midrash where he says the rock that followed him was the Messiah, Yeshua himself. So this seemingly unimportant, superfluous reference to God speaking with Moses in the wilderness of, wilderness of Sinai indicates that God provided for Israel in the wilderness better than the finest royalty could have expected to receive. So understood in, understood in this light, perhaps then we can appreciate this insight from our Hasidic brothers and sisters. And I quote something that I saw that they sent out. As, you know, if you get on these mailing lists, you get these kinds of things every now and then. This is what Moshe gave to the Jews in the desert. He gave them joy. It is the same joy that earlier enabled Abraham, our father, to pass all of God's tests and is therefore the essence of Judaism. Without joy, Judaism can become mere ritual and the Torah become just one of many religious manuals. With it, both are warm and alive, as are we. The desolate desert brought our ancestors to humility, the main prerequisite for joy. They realized that they, like the desert, have nothing of their own. After all, egotists can never be truly happy. They always want more for themselves. But the main source of Jewish joy is, as it says at the splitting of the sea, 
Exodus 14 and 15. Nikomoka. The Jews believed in God and his servant Moshe. Then they sang. And I'm going to suggest it's the same for us in each and every one of our circumstances when we believe in God. And so, as Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord can become our strength. Further, the message of the book of Numbers yields another insight. Far from traveling and encamping in a haphazard, chaotic fashion, we're told in the Parsha from two weeks ago, the Israelites are given a deliberate plan. Chapter 1, verse 50. They will encamp around the tabernacle. Additionally, that parasha describes the detailed, the very detailed positioning of the 12 tribes. It reads, camped on the front or the east side, the standard of the division of Judah. A little later on the south, the standard of Ruvain. On the west, the standard of the division of Ephraim. And on the north, the standard of the division of Dan. And I've skipped a lot of the bits and pieces along the way as well. So, ask yourself the question, what can we learn from this meticulous order and in particular from the focal point of the encampment, the camp? Because above all else is the shared focus that the camp of Israel had. As the tabernacle housed God's presence in the middle of the Israelites, it's no surprise then that all eyes would be rooted on this sacred space. And in a sense, our parsha for this week hints at it because it talks not only about the ordering of the lights of the menorah, but if you read carefully, it is set up in such a way as to focus the lights of the menorah forward, front and center, much the same as the camp was focused on its center. Such careful positioning offered the Israelites, I'm going to suggest, a tangible and visible mission statement on their journey toward the land of Israel. They were reminded that they marched not for themselves solely or for the community surrounding them, but more significantly as sacred witnesses to the actual and active presence of God among them. And after all, as we're going to read in several weeks, this is what Balaam, that strange prophet, also clearly understood. In another part of Shabbat liturgy, Matovu, we reflect on those words of Balaam. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. He recognized something. Remember, by the way, concerning Balaam, and this will set you up for a couple weeks down the road, he was a truly strange prophet. Number one, he entered into, how should we put it, I'm not quite sure how to describe this. A debate with his donkey. And as strange as that was, he not only entered into a debate with his donkey, he lost the debate. <laughs> and yet he clearly understood something about Israel as the nation marched through the wilderness. And significantly, in the next chapter, Numbers chapter 2, verse 2, it says, The Israelites shall camp, each with his standard, under the banners of their ancestral houses. They will camp around the tent of meeting. One of our most distinguished commentators through the years, the great rabbi and commentator Rashi, writing uh, about a thousand years ago, reflected on this, and he said, Each banner 
shall have a different sign, a piece of colored cloth hanging on it, the color of the one not being the same as the color of the other. But the color of each tribe shall be like that of the stone that is fixed in the breastplate of the high priest. So each ancestral house then has its own distinct banner. And presumably, the different banners represent not only a difference in color, but perhaps just as well a difference in family cultures. The beauty that's encapsulated in this midrash that Rashi is quoting is symbolized by the breastplate of the priest. As the high priest performs his duties, he wears this breastplate of 12 precious stones, each stone representing one of the tribes. Symbolically, then, as he's engaged in the work of God, he's expressing the diversity that exists among the Israelites. This balance is further reflected in the encampment. While the people face a common focal point, still their diversity around that space is recognized and in fact even nurtured. And perhaps here's another lesson for us in these early chapters of the book. And then in the middle of the beauty of all that diversity, the glorious presence of God himself radiates from the very center, center of the camp. Now, in effect, then, the nation is reorganized from a nation of households to a national house, one that is protected, one that is illuminated, as our text begins our parasha for this week, Baha'u'llah, one that's elevated. Let me pitch at you a slightly different translation of the word not so from last week, also found in the parasha from two weeks ago. Not just count, but literally to raise the heads. When God counts, we don't become numbers. When God counts, we are elevated. So this is, a, this is a, a group, a nation of households then becoming a national house, one that's protected, one that's illuminated, one that's elevated by God's actual presence. And I'm going to suggest furthermore that this is just part of a startling reality. The scripture text that I had listed for today comes from Numbers chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. It's right smack dab in the heart of the Parsha for this week. And it reads, On the day the tabernacle was raised, the cloud covered it. And that evening the cloud changed to the appearance of fire, and it stayed that way throughout the night. It was always so the daytime cloud changing to the appearance of fire at night. When the cloud lifted, the people of Israel moved on to wherever it stopped, and they encamped there. In this way, they journeyed at the command of the Lord, and they stopped where he told them to, and then remained there as long as the cloud stayed. And then that's elaborated a little further through the rest of that chapter. In other words... The people moved when God said to move. They stopped when God said to stop. And not only were they following his directions, they were literally following him because he personally led them through the desert. And God, the text said from last week, led them into the wilderness. Vayi bin Soa, you remember from just a few minutes ago. And it came to pass. Whenever the ark went forward, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. That's taken from the end of the next chapter of Numbers, Numbers chapter 10, also part of our parasha today. 
And in our liturgy, that text is then expanded, for from Zion shall go forth the Torah, the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. Now, after the scroll is placed in the ark, in the extended liturgy, we read from the last part of the book of Numbers, chapter 10, again from to today's Parsha. When the ark rested, Moses would say, Return, O Lord, to the myriads of Israel's families. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and your mighty ark. And to that we've added, as part of our liturgy, so clothe your priests with righteousness. May those who've experienced your faithful love shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, bring the coming of the Messiah. That's part of what's... That part of the wilderness ex experience is connected to what should become part of our reliving that wilderness experience, our walk with God each week during Shabbat. So no wonder then, understanding even that part of it, which is part of our parsha this week, that God personally led, God personally resided. Remember what it says, when the ark rested, return, O Lord, to the myriads of Israel's family. Take your place in the middle of the camp once again as we surround where you live. Look, bottom line of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is this. God literally moved in to their neighborhood. That's what it is. No wonder then Balaam recognized how goodly are your tents. Matovu, O Haleka, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. And then to that understanding we have added in the liturgy, this is the place where your glory resides. And then in keeping with our texts for this week, the second paragraph reads, O Lord, lead me in the right path like you did for us in the wilderness. In your light, the pillar, may we see light. Moreover, as we look at this book and its opening chapters or opening parashiot, writing about the year 1200, one of my favorite medieval rabbis, the Ramban, Nachmanides, notes some striking parallels between the tabernacle and the revelation at Sinai. These comparisons suggest that the tabernacle and then later the temple and to some degree the synagogue that the tabernacle was to serve as a home for the same presence of God that rested on Israel at Sinai. By making the tabernacle then central to and in the nation, as our book of Numbers notes, not only geographically but conceptually now as well, the people would come to understand that they would be keeping Mount Sinai among them always. In other words, they would be experiencing or should be experiencing a perpetual Shavuot. I'll let you think about that just for a second. Just as they surrounded the mountain longing for closeness to God at that first Shavuot, they would encamp around the tabernacle, symbolizing that their very existence was based, was predicated on their closeness to the God who gave them the Torah. Now, let me take that one step further and bring us back to a central image standing behind Sinai the mountain and then Sinai the wilderness. The central image is this, wedding and honeymoon. Mm -hmm. The ancient sages, our rabbis of old, often described the Mount Sinai experience as the place where God entered into a marriage relationship with us as his people. Shavuot always falls at the beginning of the reading of Numbers. 
It's as if, as Numbers begins, the guests are counted, and then everyone is seated in their proper place and order. So the wedding can begin. It's time for Shavuot. Our brothers and sisters in the Sephardi community and in the North African community at Shavuot celebrate Shavuot as the renewal of our wedding vows before God. And in our home synagogue, we've adopted some of those customs to let our people enter into that wedding renewal. Now I ask you, what happens after the wedding? Honeymoon? In the wilderness? Jeremiah 2.2, as a young bride, God says, as a young bride newly married, you loved me and followed me in the wilderness. I'm going to ask you to stretch your memories and find out if you actually read the words that are printed for you each week in the bulletin. I sometimes doubt that the bulletins we provide for our people are very well read, so perhaps you don't either. Two weeks ago, do you know what the Haftorah was for the beginning of the wilderness and experience, the lead up into Shavuot? Very good, Hosea chapter 2. Do you know what Hosea chapter 2 is all about? In case you have forgotten, it is the meditation that we reflect on every morning during the morning services when we lay tefillin and bind the tefillin on our arms and on our heads. It says, God says, I will bind you to me in faithfulness and in mercy and in loving kindness and in graciousness. I will bind you to me forever. And the Old English translates that betrothed as in engage. It's part of the picture. And during this process of honeymoon in the wilderness, what does God tell us? He tells us both at the beginning of Deuteronomy and at the end of Deuteronomy, he said, your shoes... No, I'm sorry, they weren't shoes. I know, they were sandals. Okay, their sandals didn't wear out, your clothes didn't wear out, and in one of the texts, I forget whether it's the one at the beginning or at the end, you didn't even get blisters. It's like the Midrash on Bemidbar. God, no, we were treated royally as his queen by the great king. Now, by the way, on Shavuot in Israel, one thing people usually do is to enjoy the food that's made from the new crop harvests in Israel. They do so as a reminder of God's royal generosity and his loving faithfulness to us through the wilderness. With this in mind, then, we could say that the Exodus and Sinai, then, formed two pillars of Jewish peoplehood, the Exodus being Jewish community, the Sinai being Jewish identity. Jewish community is tribal. Jewish identity is covenantal. And that covenant that was delivered to us at Mount Sinai is also called by the sages ketubah, a wedding contract. So part of the pillars of who we are as a people and those who joined with us as a greater commonwealth, we have the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who is at the core of it all. And as in our texts for the opening chapters of Numbers, he's the focus of our attention as he was in Sinai, the wilderness, and at Sinai, 
the mountain. Now, earlier in the service, there's something more that ties into this whole picture, and I want to take you back now to last week's parsha. Because the wilderness properly understood from God's perspective was a time of blessing. That picture is, pardon me, this is pictured and reinforced by last week's parsha and what's called the Aaronic benediction. May God bless you and keep you and so forth. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a nice little blessing, but what does it mean? It begins with the priests asking God to keep, to physically protect each and every person as well as every family in the nation. The word shemor is used there, which is the same word that describes God in the Psalms. He that watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, watches over. Now the next couple verses are further requests from the priests for God to pay attention to the needs that the people of Israel have. You see, to shine his face or lift up and to lift up his face on you are both ancient Hebrew idioms for seeing and paying favorable attention to someone. If someone's lifted up their face to someone else, it meant that that person saw the other person, paid attention to him favorably. So these verses then become requests from the priests for God to grant his favor and his peace to the entire nation. And then in the wilderness, as I've already mentioned, God physically protected his people, paid attention to their situation, and showered the people with repeated and regular acts of kindness and gave the entire nation peace. By the way, as you look at that text from last week, it's worthwhile to note that these blessings are not simply for individuals. They're meant to be bestowed by God on all of Israel as a people. The Hebrew is written second person singular. Now, I know it's the weekend and I shouldn't be throwing grammar at you, but there it is anyhow. <clears throat> Israel is, is addressed as you, meaning one person. Same form of address in Jeremiah 2, when you as a young or newly married bride followed me. And then the last verse uses another ancient idiom, put my name on the people of Israel. Friends, this does not mean to call God by his name, often understood to be the tetragrammaton or the most holy name of God. In fact, Technically, we don't know how to pronounce that name, so we could never do this with accuracy anyway. But instead, the word name in the text means reputation. In Hebrew, a person's name, Shem, is also the word for a reputation, and it's used that way in the book of Proverbs. You know, a good reputation is to be more desired than gold. And regularly, the Proverbs use Shem for reputation. And so also then perhaps here in number 627, a reputation is indicated. When Israel keeps God's instructions, his Torah, then the nation effectively carries God's reputation through the Sinai. This is reflected on in a text that begins the book of Deuteronomy, where God says through Moses, if you follow my instructions and my guidelines, the nations will look at you and they will say, pardon the Fisher paraphrase here, Wow, or whoa, 
Who, what kind of nation is this that has a God so close to them, who answers their prayers, that has laws as wonderful as these? That gets carried out when we live according to those guidelines. So this is done by carrying out his teachings, his Torah, by following him, Jeremiah 2, in the wilderness. I don't know if that's Moses or God calling, so we'll have to check to find out. I always get scared when that happens. Are you correcting me or saying, keep going, you're doing well? Okay, anyhow. Um, ah, that's okay. It's a humorous interlude. Um, carrying God's reputation through the Sinai. Following his teachings, follow him, following him literally, showing his acts of, exp- of compassion, expressing and demonstrating his legacy, reflecting his light, the light to that pillar of cloud that we follow. Now, in such a situation, the people were in an appropriate position to receive the blessings from God, as verse 27 promises. We too, my friends, can walk in similar blessings. How? Well, this week's parasha tells us. But more, impro- more appropriately, this week's Haftorah tells us. Did you bother to look at what it was? Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Additionally, let me point out as part of our reflection this morning, the cloud rested over the tabernacle and the ark with the tablets of the covenant inside. In other words, where could the cloud be found? The cloud could be found wherever the tabernacle was, wherever the covenant was. So the tabernacle and the covenant are where the people, where we are to look for and find the cloud, God himself. Here, we truly experience God and his blessings. And we're better enabled to share those blessings with others so that when they look at our lives, they can say, wow, or whoa. What a wonderful and blessed people this is who has a God so near to them that he answers their prayer and who has laws so wonderful as these that he has given to us. Which is why each Shabbat should be another reliving, as the rabbis intended, of the experience at Sinai, the mountain, when we receive the Torah, and Sinai, the wilderness, when we literally walked with God hand in hand. That's the challenge, that's the opportunity that our parsha from this week and from the last two weeks. Dr. Fisher, I wanted to thank you for this word from the word of God. Just uh, as, as we are, we're standing in the presence of God. I hope that's not a uh, revelation. Life is busy and intense, and we are preoccupied, and so let's treasure those moments when we are quiet in the Lord's presence. As Dr. Fisher pointed out, God often draws us into the desert so that we can be quiet 
and undistracted and hear. And then he speaks to us. And he leads us. The portion that was read spoke about God, God going before Israel, searching a place for them to camp and to rest. So perhaps God has you in the desert and you're fussing and grumbling like we all do. If so, just pause long enough and say, Lord, thank you for bringing me to a place that is quiet where I can hear you and receive what you have to say. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful picture of your relationship with us, your relationship with Israel, how it impacts us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you turn down the volume and the lights, Lord, so that we can be quiet and we can listen. Lord God, we desire to listen. Samuel said to you, speak for your servant hears. And Lord God, as we conclude, as we worship you, Lord, I pray for each one of us where we have been struggling with desert times and grumbling and murmuring, Lord God, cause us to see your gracious hand in our life circumstances. Teach us, Lord God, how to be a thankful people and receive from your hand all that we need in those times. Thank you, Lord for your gracious and patient work in our life. In Yeshua's name, amen.